Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Greed often brings out the worst in people. The desire for riches and a good life can make seemingly stable people act irrationally. The opportunity to personally gain during the commission of a typically blue-collar crime like insurance fraud is something that Jack Gilbert Graham couldn't resist. So when it came to his mother, Daisy, he knew he could collect a significant amount of life insurance money in the event of her death. Jack came up with a vengeful plot to murder her and anyone else that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. This kind of story is something we have covered before, a child that murders a parent. However, this story is much more disturbing because this troubled young man, Jack Graham, didn't merely arrange to have his mother killed for insurance money. No, this deranged individual built a time bomb, wrapped it up as a Christmas present, and placed it in his mom's luggage, bombing the plane she and 44 other innocent people were on. Okay, on to the show. Daisy Eldora Walker was born on March 9, 1902, in Buena Vista, Colorado, to Gilbert and Deborah Walker. Gilbert was a judge, and Daisy lived in the country and grew up as a tomboy, spending her days outside fishing and riding. That all changed in 1916, when the family moved to Denver when Daisy was just 14, and that is where she graduated from high school. On January 26, 1921, Daisy married Tom Gallagher. Two years later, in 1923, they had a daughter named Helen. The couple later divorced, although the reason why is unknown. Daisy married again, this time to William Graham, on December 16, 1929, in Golden, Colorado. William was 30 years older than Daisy. On January 23, 1932, she gave birth to John Gilbert Graham, and they called him Jack as a nickname. Unfortunately, William died sometime between 1935 or 1937, as reported by various sources, although the cause is unknown. The death of William left Daisy in a very tough spot. She was a single mother of two children, and she was destitute. She took up a job at the phone company, and her mother would help her look after Jack. Unfortunately, Daisy's mother passed away in 1938, so Daisy had some really hard decisions to make. She enrolled her daughter Helen in a college prep school and sent Jack to Clayton College, which was an orphanage. In those days, orphanages would accept children that lost either both parents or their father. A report from Clayton College stated, quote, Jack is very unhappy and depressed at times, has trouble getting along with other children and adults. He is careless with other people's possessions. He clamors for undue attention and is rebellious when not given it. He feels his mother does not love him because he was put in the institution. Daisy married her third husband, John King, who went by the name Earl on February 17, 1941, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Earl was a wealthy rancher, and even though Daisy had the money, she did not get Jack out of the orphanage. Jack went to school in Denver, but he only completed the ninth grade. 
His teachers described him as having a fine mind and had generally high grades, but his personal and social adjustments were very poor. In 1947, when Jack was 15, he moved to Alaska. He worked construction and stayed in the state until 1948. In 1948, Jack enlisted in the Coast Guard in Seattle, Washington. He served in the Coast Guard until January 1949, when he went AWOL, or absent without leave, for 63 days. However, Jack still received an honorable discharge. He was not discharged because of going AWOL, but rather for fraudulently enlisting at the age of 16. When he was released, he had the rank of motorman third class. After the Coast Guard, Jack went back to Alaska to work construction and then as a heavy-duty equipment mechanic. Unfortunately, he was no stranger to the police. In March 1951, while working as a payroll clerk at a manufacturing business, Jack stole bank checks and then filled out 42 of them for $100 each. Jack forged the company owner's signature on the checks, and then he cashed them at several different Denver locations. In total, he stole about $4,200 in cash, which is approximately $42,000 today. He immediately bought himself a $2,000 convertible, which would have been worth $20,000 today, and immediately left Denver. In September 1951, he was bootlegging alcohol in Lubbock, Texas. When police went to arrest Jack, he hopped in his car and drove off. He ran a roadblock, firing shots at the police officers. After being captured, Jack was sentenced to 60 days in jail. And once he served his time, he was sent back to Denver to face charges for the 42 forged checks. He was ultimately found guilty of that crime as well and sentenced to five years probation. Finally, he realized it was time to turn his life around. Jack earned his high school diploma when he passed the entrance exams at Denver University and was admitted as a student, but he only attended for a year. While at the university, Jack met Gloria. The couple dated and eventually got married on June 14, 1953. The couple had two children, Alan and Suzanne. At the time of the bombing, Alan was 20 months old and Suzanne was nine months old. In October of 1954, Jack's stepfather, Earl, died from heart disease. Earl's estate, combined with Daisy's father's estate, who passed away two years prior, left Daisy with about $150,000, or $1.5 million today. After Earl's death, Daisy brought Jack back into her life. She offered to buy his family a house in Denver, but on the condition that she be able to live with them, and they accepted. The agreement was that Daisy would live with the couple until her death. In the spring of 1955, Daisy bought some property and built a drive-in restaurant. She called it Crown A Drive-In and served hot dogs, hamburgers, ice creams, and many other things. Jack left his job as a mechanic to work as a manager at the drive-in. In May 1955, the windows to the drive-in received considerable damage from vandals. A few months later in September, there was an explosion and fire at the drive-in. Jack claimed a fire examiner found that someone had disconnected a gas line connection. When the gas reached the water heater's pilot light, the explosion occurred. There was also $3 missing from the cash register, and some furniture was broken. In all, there was about $1,200 in damage. Undeterred, Daisy opened another drive-in restaurant, this time in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. She called this one 
Dairy King. Business was so good that Jack was able to buy himself a new truck. However, on July 26, 1955, Jack's new vehicle was hit by a train. Later in October of 1955, Jack saw a United Airlines plane crash in Wyoming, which sparked an idea. He thought he could murder his mother by causing a plane crash. To create such a scenario, he would need a way to be confident that the plane would crash, which meant he would need to bomb it. Jack's friend helped him build this bomb. The friend, Carl, showed him how to make a bomb, and Jack did a test, and upon success, he was ready to execute his master plan. He purchased the necessary materials and built a second bomb. On November 1, 1955, Daisy was flying to Alaska when Jack put the bomb in her suitcase. There are some conflicting reports on how exactly Jack got the bomb present into Daisy's bag, but regardless of how he did it, Jack did manage to get the bomb into her luggage. Once they got to the airport, Jack dropped off his wife and son as well as Daisy at the airport terminal, and then he went to park the car. He took Daisy's suitcase out of the car and set the timer on the bomb for 90 minutes. Jack's intention was for the plane to explode over the Medicine Bow Mountain so that it wouldn't be discovered until the snow melted. What Jack failed to account for is that airplanes rarely take off and land precisely on time. And this flight was no exception. The plane was delayed by about 22 minutes, throwing his timeline completely off. Jack made up an excuse to take the suitcase inside to the check-in counter, where the luggage was weighed before being placed into the belly of the plane. The bag was overweight, so Daisy had to pay a fee. The mom only weighed 14 pounds, so the luggage was going to be overweight regardless of whether it was inside. After seeing his mother off, Jack stopped off at a vending machine and paid $1.50 for a $37,500 insurance policy for Daisy naming himself as the sole beneficiary. During this period in history, many people were wary of flying, so travelers frequently bought travel insurance, which was so popular that vending machines selling insurance plans were installed in the airports. United Airlines Flight 629 was a DC-6B plane that could typically hold from 52 to 102 people depending on the exact model. There was a flight daily between New York City and Seattle, Washington, with stops in Chicago, Illinois, Denver, Colorado, and Portland, Oregon. On November 1st, the plane landed in Denver about 11 minutes late because of ground delays. The aircraft was refueled and checked over per regulations, but no maintenance was needed. There were 39 passengers and five flight crew on board the flight. The plane departed at 6.52 p.m. from Stapleton Airport in Denver, Colorado, heading for a stop in Portland, Oregon, before continuing to its eventual destination in Alaska. Approximately 11 minutes after the plane took off, it crashed into a sugar beet farm near Longmont, Colorado, which was nearly 39 miles from the airport. Each of the passengers aboard died instantly as the plane exploded in the air. Horrifically, bodies began to fall from the sky, with most landing on their back, which meant that many of the faces weren't damaged beyond recognition, and they mostly retained their fingers and hands. Minutes after the explosion, the Longmont Police Department's phones started ringing off the hooks. Thousands of people rushed to the tragic scene, 
many staying to help search for bodies and otherwise assist in any way possible. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. BetterHelp has been my go-to for online therapy for the last year. I deal with depression and anxiety, so having someone at my fingertips to talk to has helped me immensely. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. Like I said, you can log in anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll definitely get timely and thoughtful responses, and you can even schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So join me and the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Visit BetterHelp.com TCFC for 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com TCFC for 10% off your first month. The flames and embers took nearly three days to burn out completely. Firefighters worked tirelessly, trying to put out the blazes, and police investigators worked the scene as best they could, trying to collect all possible evidence. There was a National Guard armory in the nearby town called Greeley, and bodies were taken there from the crash site, as the armory acted as a temporary morgue. Experts from the FBI were sent out to collect fingerprints, although by the time they arrived, about nine crash victims were already ID'd by family or friends, or by some other form of identification. The other 35 bodies were eventually fingerprinted and identified by the FBI. Hundreds of potential witnesses were interviewed between November 2nd and 5th about anything they saw or heard. The police talked to anyone they could find within an approximate 140-mile radius around the crash site. Of those several hundred, almost 40 witnesses were able to provide some information that proved to be useful. A visual examination of the scene was conducted between November 2nd through the 7th, and it was discovered that pieces of the airplane were seen as far as six miles from the actual crash site. The tail of the plane was severed from the front end and was found almost two miles away. The midsection of the aircraft was scattered everywhere, but the engines and nose remained virtually intact. United Airlines conducted an internal investigation, reviewing all parts and pieces of the plane and why it came apart the way it did. There were about five pieces of sheet metal found at the scene. They couldn't be identified as parts of the aircraft or even as part of the cargo. The pieces were burned with a soot-like material covering them. One piece had blue letters spelling H-O, and it was otherwise colored red. The other piece was identified as a part of a hotshot 6-volt battery, which is what police determined was used to detonate the bomb. The chief of investigations of the Civil Aeronautics Board made a statement on November 7th, saying that the FBI was invited to begin an official criminal investigation. On November 8th, the FBI opened its investigation, assigning various agents to several different tasks, such as interviewing witnesses, tracing cargo, mail, and luggage, and searching the wreckage for baggage and personal belongings. During the investigation, the FBI collected many different statements, which led them to conclude that the plane blew up with an explosion so intense that the force of it was felt on the ground. 
fire streaked from the sky and a flare that was left behind on the plane also exploded. But when the aircraft hit the land, it created a second explosion. There was an airport control operator who witnessed the horrific event. And when he saw what happened, he radioed to all nearby planes and was able to deduce which plane exploded when only one failed to report back. An abundance of evidence was found. Wreckage was everywhere. Because so much of the aircraft was found, the FBI was able to recreate the layout of the plane to determine if there was some sort of flammable material on the plane or if something more nefarious was going on. All of the passengers, as well as the flight crew, were investigated, along with all of their baggage. Furthermore, life insurance policies were reviewed because they were so easy to purchase at the airport directly. The investigation quickly led them to a passenger named Daisy King. As they looked into Daisy, they discovered that there were three life insurance policies taken out, all of which were payable to different children. But what stood out was that two plans were a modest 6250 for her sister and her daughter. That would be equivalent to around $60,000 today. But the policy for her son Jack was a whopping $37,500 or approximately $360,000 by today's standards. Intrigued, investigators dug deeper into the relationship between Daisy and her son, Jack. They knew they were onto something as they came across Jack's criminal background. The FBI case began to zero in on Jack as it was discovered that he was possibly embezzling from his mother's business and even stood to gain a large inheritance in the event of her death. On November 10th, Jack was brought in for questioning, and he was pretty direct initially, telling about his upbringing, but stopping short of confessing to the vandalism at the family businesses. He admitted that there was an explosion at one of the stores, but again, didn't claim any wrongdoing. He also agreed that there was an accident with his truck, but had an immediate excuse with that incident too, saying the car stalled on the train tracks and was hit by a train. Jack was able to describe what his mother's travel plans were and could even explain what her luggage looked like. He made a point to let them know that she had ammunition with her while traveling because she was planning to hunt in Alaska. Jack's wife, Gloria, was interviewed by investigators on November 11th. She told them about her life with Jack and what she knew of his life growing up. Gloria also admitted that she knew what Daisy's luggage looked like but denied anyone else putting something in it or packing anything for her. She told police that Jack gave Daisy a Christmas present before she left for her trip, but that he didn't pack it for her. Also on November 11th, several of Jack's relatives and neighbors were interviewed and told police about a present Jack was insistent on getting to Daisy before her trip as well as Jack's odd behavior when he heard about the plane crash. Police brought several pieces of Daisy's luggage into their office and contacted Jack and Gloria, asking them to come in to claim items belonging to his mother. They let Gloria leave, but asked Jack to stay to look at some more things. He agreed and stayed. They began to ask him about the present he wanted his mother to have before she left, they wanted to know why it was so important that she got it right before she left. Why couldn't he just mail it? He didn't have much to offer in the way of answers. He described his day of taking Daisy to the airport with his family, but didn't give any other information. The same day, November 13th, 
The investigators went to the Graham home to verify some statements they said didn't seem to match up. The house, property, and even the cars were searched, and police found a ton of circumstantial evidence, such as a copy of the insurance policy he purchased the day of the flight, and mailed to himself and some pieces of bomb-making equipment that matched items found at the crash scene. After a time of interrogation by the police, Jack was starting to break down, talking about his mother and how she was always upset with him. And shortly after that, he confessed to bombing the plane with his mother on it. He wanted to kill her to get the insurance money. He signed a statement to that effect and was promptly arrested. Jack was charged federally with sabotage on November 14th. The maximum penalty for airplane sabotage was only 10 years because there was no law in the books about blowing up an aircraft. Because of this, the case was transferred back to the lower state court to charge Jack with the murder of Daisy King, his mother. Jack was lucky in the sense that he was only charged with Daisy's murder. He killed a total of 44 individuals that were innocent of the terrible punishment Jack inflicted on them. Where Jack wasn't so lucky was that despite only being charged with one murder, he was still eligible for the death penalty. And that was just what the Colorado prosecutors were going to seek for justice. Jack was charged with murder in Colorado on November 17th, and he pleaded not guilty because of insanity. While he was awaiting trial, the police continued to investigate Jack. They brought in his half-sister, Helen, who had a lot to say. She spoke of Jack's abusive tendencies towards his wife and the violence he displayed. She admitted it made her extremely uncomfortable, and she was even scared of him. Anytime a murder defendant claims insanity, a psychiatrist will evaluate that person to determine if they are mentally sound to stand trial. Meaning, can they participate in their defense and do they understand the consequences of their actions? Jack was evaluated and determined to be fit for trial. In a surprising turn of events, he dropped the insanity part of his plea in December of 1955 and therefore was pleading not guilty. However, he attempted suicide by hanging while he was in jail on February 10, 1956, and was subsequently sent to a psychiatric ward where he began to confess even more to his crimes, not just to the bombing, but other insurance crimes he committed. His trial began on April 23, 1956. The case was an absolute media circus, especially for that time in history. Hundreds were waiting to gain entry to the courtroom to watch the proceedings. The prosecutors delivered a detailed case with much evidence, and the defense based their argument on some technicalities, such as Jack's rights not being read correctly, although they were. Jack did not testify at his trial. The jury only deliberated for a little over an hour, and on May 5th, they delivered a verdict of guilty. On May 15th, Jack was sentenced to the death penalty for murdering his mother. Less than a year later, on June 11, 1957, Jack was executed. His final words were, quote, Everybody pays their way and takes their chances. That's just the way it goes. His last supper consisted of a steak dinner with ice cream for dessert, although he only ate the ice cream and gave the rest of his meal to other prisoners. The gas chamber claimed his life 
at 8.08 p.m. after just 12 minutes. Jack's wife Gloria and her children went back to her maiden name until she remarried. She passed away in 1992. The son she produced with Jack, Alan, was married in 1976 but then fell off the grid and has since been presumed dead. Their daughter Suzanne is a nurse, helping to provide comfort to those in their time of need. While there isn't time to get into depth about each victim that was on that doomed flight, we will briefly touch on a few. James Fitzpatrick II and his mother Helen were flying to see her husband, who was in the army, and she wanted to give him some time with his new baby boy, who was only 14 months old. Layla McLean was the eldest passenger at 81 years old. She was flying from Connecticut to Portland. James and Sarah Dory were flying to Portland, Oregon, to see their son. It was Sarah's first and only flight. Patricia and Gerald Lipke were a vacationing couple that was going to Portland. It was Patricia's first ever flight, too, and it was sadly her only one as well. Jesse Sizemore was an airman second class who was returning to base in Alaska from a brief leave. Harold Stanstead was a nutrition doctor working for the United States Public Health Service, and it was that job that placed him on his final flight as he was going to give a lecture at Oregon State College. Sally Schofield was an off-duty airline stewardess who was planning to marry a pilot later that year. Another couple, Ralph and Minnie Van Vallen, were aboard traveling for a genealogy project they were doing. There were five crew members, including Captain Lee H. Hall, who was only 39 years old when he died, doing what he loved. Other crew members include First Officer Donald White, Flight Engineer Samuel Arthur, Stewardess Peggy Lou Petticord, and Stewardess Jacqueline Hines. One life was purposely taken in exchange for 44 other innocent ones, 44 precious, beautiful lives that died in a genuinely unimaginable and horrific manner. If there is any small comfort in this tragedy, it's that there were 44 people to comfort each other in their final moments, to try and make those last moments just a little less scary and frightening. The madman who stole those innocent lives paid with his own, and while the loss of life is always something to mourn, at least Jack Graham paid his debt to society. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was co-written by Mary Cole and Brittany Martinez, researched by Haley Gray. Content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>